Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Did They Do It podcast. I am your host, McKinley Daw, and I hope you're all having a good week. Um, I went to the BYU versus Wyoming game this weekend, and it was lots of fun. Um, definitely a little bit of a struggle in the first little bit, but BYU pulled through. We won. Um, but my fr- my friends and I made a poster that said, win or lose, at least we don't live in Wyoming. So I thought that was kind of funny. No offense if you live in Wyoming. I have nothing against people who live there. I just thought it was funny. But I'm not, I won't bore you guys with the details. So today we will be talking about the Kathleen Peterson case. So I don't know if any of you remember, it was a while ago, but I put up a poll on the Instagram asking if any of you had heard about this case. And a surprising amount of you had not which I found shocking because there's actually a Netflix documentary on this case. Um, It is definitely for an older audience, so if you're going to watch it, I would definitely keep that in mind. Um, I should also warn you in this episode, there will be a few things, well not a few things, like one thing that we talk about that are for an older audience as well, but they are just important details uh, that I feel the story wouldn't be really complete without, so just keep that in mind. So, this story occurs over a long period of time because there are things in the past, in this case, that in my opinion are vital to understanding what occurred in, like, the main crime in this case. So, I will try and make it as clear as possible, but just know we might be going back and forth as far as the timeline goes, but I will try to make it as clear as I can. So, Michael and Kathleen Peterson were married in 1997. Kathleen, whose maiden name was Atwater, was a successful executive at a telecommunications company. Michael was a successful novelist. By all accounts from family and friends, they all said that Michael and Kathleen were happy and totally compatible until December 9, 2001, when everything changed. At 2.40 a.m., a 911 call came into Durham, North Carolina Sheriff's Office. It was Michael Peterson. And I'm going to play this 911 call for you because this call becomes a big part of whether or not Michael played a part in this crime. Um, it is kind of a huge part of, of his guilt or his innocence. And so I'm going to play it for you and then I'm going to analyze it for you guys after. So here's the 911 call. Okay, so I know that was kind of hard to hear and kind of to understand because it's super grainy and stuff, but there is this amazing website called Statement Analysis, and they analyzed Michael's 911 call and pointed things out that are a a little weird with what he is saying. So the call started with the caller asking Michael, where is your emergency? He hesitates before saying, 1810 Cedar Street, please. Interestingly, he began with a pause. He kind of 
you can kind of hear in the 911 call, he says, um, 1810 Student Street, right? So when he was asked for the address, he kind of hesitated. But the statement analysis blog wrote that off as maybe Michael thinking they would ask him, what is your emergency first rather than where is your emergency? So the 911 operator then asked Michael, what's wrong? So this is kind of similar to them asking like, what happened or what is your emergency and so on. So we kind of expect him to say what happened, to whom it happened to, and to ask for help for Kathleen. So we sometimes find within like guilty caller status that the subject asking is asking for help for himself and not for the person who is hurt. So this is appropriate if he is asking for specific guidance for like CPR or first aid. Otherwise, it's often noted as a form of leakage where the caller recognizes that he himself needs help, but not the person who got hurt needs help, if that makes sense. So then in the call, he says, my wife had an accident. She is still breathing. So the subject begins with a classification of what happened. She had an accident. This is his priority over her current condition where he might ask for help for her or for himself to help her in first aid. It is not that the authorities, police, or medical assistants know what is wrong or what happened, but what happened to her was not by intention, but an accident. So, kind of weird, right? So, this kind of, like, those who can help her don't know what happened to her because he doesn't provide details, and they don't know what injuries she has, so they cannot be given, like, she cannot be given directives or first aid or CPR because they don't know what is wrong with her. So, we do... We do not always expect a complete social introduction in the opening response to what happened or what is wrong due to urgency, obviously. So therefore, we cannot conclude here that the absence of her name is indicative of a poor relationship. It very well may be, but due to the urgency of an emergency call, we know it yet without putting too much emphasis upon it. Okay, so the the blog wrote that... Lastly, they note that there's something unusual in his priority. And so this is where he chose to begin the information. So what happened to her was not intentional and no one can be blamed. He says it was an accident. He doesn't say she fell down the stairs. She needs help. He says my wife had an accident. So without and then he didn't tell 911 what happened or what need is present. And he uses the word still. So the word still is a word from the element of time. It is found in a sentence where time is elapsing. He does not wait to be asked, is she breathing? After saying, my wife fell down the stairs, but wants police to know she is still breathing. He does not offer, she is barely breathing or something similar. So this indicates a monitor, like a monitoring of her breathing during the passage of time. So remember that he began with intention. He used accident. And here the law of economy is reversed in order to give a single small additional and unnecessary word still to tell us did he have an expectation that she would no longer be breathing and how much time has passed and then he says that my wife fell down the stairs and is barely breathing or something similar well he doesn't say that but something similar to that is to go directly to what happened without the need for classification because he just says that that she had an accident She is still breathing indicates that time has elapsed, leading us to question how much time had passed before he actually called 911. When taken with the conclusion of the matter, 
or the accident that she died as a result of no person's cause the priority is established and by the simple word still he has raised the question of time he should now ask for ask or demand for help for her or help for him to administer emergency first aid so then the 911 caller asks what kind of accident which should have he should have said that first right so then he then says she fell down the stairs she is still breathing please come so this is where scripted language becomes a possible concern like that he might have practiced what he was going to say beforehand and that's kind of why he's stuttering and because they didn't say what he thought he they would say he the 911 caller is not saying what he thought they would right so this after he says she fell down the stairs she's still breathing please come he now tells police that she fell down the stairs and this is more detail and it is significant because he does not however ask for help for her nor does he report her status beyond still which further emphasizes the passage of time like how much time has passed since like the from the time she supposedly fell down the stairs to the time you are now calling 911 so yeah her status would be about blood or how to help her via first aid so then he says please come using politeness come but he does not say to assist the victim right so it's just all over the place so the 911 caller then says is she conscious and then he says what and then she asks again is she conscious and he says no she is not conscious please so please in repetition shows an acute need to be on the side of good that is the police in this case so this is the ingration factor we find in various settings including in guilty statements missing children as well as technique used in interviewing so the concern is that he is presenting as urgent while repeating the word still and indicating time passage so then the 911 operator asked him how many stairs did she fall down so michael has not given any indication of her condition for which the operator can direct first aid since nothing is offered the operator is searching for information this is to indicate right so everyone every 911 call like every interview will give the interviewer or the operator one of two impressions either the subject is working with me to facilitate the flow of information or they're not so then michael goes what what and then and then she goes then the 911 operator says how many stairs did doesn't finish her sentence michael says stairs the 911 operator says how many stairs then michael hesitates with like an um uh and then the 911 operator says calm down sir calm down and then he says well he swears right here i'm not going to say the swear word so he says no 1620 i don't know please get somebody here right away please so this may not be a question he anticipated and he would need just a second or two to quickly count the number of steps or to even estimate the measure of the fall so this would also focus him upon the victim which would then give information to the police on how to advise first aid so the next question did he not hear her the first time this is not likely as he is able to repeat her words so he's on like a hormonal high alert because of the situation or is the repetition due to stalling because he was not in close proximity to the victim? This is something concerning because it is expected that he would be right with his wife, describing the breathing and able to follow directions. 
and he shows scripted urgency. He does not ask for help for his wife, nor does he ask for help for himself to administer emergency aid to her. So this is to make a show of concern, but linguistically, he's not concerned for the victim. So the 911 operator then asked, okay, somebody's dispatching the ambulance while I'm asking you questions. And then Michael goes, it's, um, it's Forest Hills, okay? Please, please. It continues the same way, but he does not ask for help for Kathleen, nor for himself to administer emergency CPR and stuff to save her life. So the 911 operator says, okay, sir, somebody else is dispatching the ambulance. Is she awake now? And then Michael hesitates again. Um, uh, and then the 911 operator goes, hello, hello. And then Michael hesitates again. Um, uh, you know, so it may have been that he went to the stairs to give an answer to the question. Seeing his wife may have startled him. But in any case, this question, easy for someone with the victim, caused him great difficulty. And this suggests that he may not have even been with Kathleen while she was laying at the bottom of the, of the stairs. So then at 2.46 a.m., he calls a second time. So the 911 operator says, where is your emergency? And Michael says, where are they? It's 1810 Cedar. She's not breathing. Please, please, would you hurry up? And this is an important change because he went from she is still breathing to she's not breathing. And they note that he did not use her name in the call, nor did he address her. We just now look back to the initial incomplete social introduction. He does not ask for help for the victim, nor for himself in administering CPR. So the 911 operator says, sir, and then Michael says, can you hear me? And the 911 operator says, sir, and he says, yes. And then the 911 operator says, sir, calm down, they're on their way. Can you tell me for sure she's not breathing, sir? Hello? Hello? And then the call ends. So the conclusion of this 911 call analysis is basically that the that Michael prioritized and reported unnecessarily that this was an accident. And Michael did not ask for help for Kathleen. He did not ask for guidance on how he should proceed with first aid. And he twice indicated a passage of time with the word still, which would cause investigators to learn if he purposely delayed calling 911. So there is the concern that some of the language may have been scripted and like he prepared it before the call and he avoided giving relevant information as to her condition other than the breathing. Police should question not only if there was a significant delay in calling 911 but to learn if she was already deceased while he claimed she was still breathing. So that's a pretty good like analysis of this call, right? Hopefully you guys understood that. I felt like it was pretty... Like, well done, right? Because you don't really think about that stuff listening to a 911 call because you, like, you don't really think about those types of words. But I like this website and how they dived into, like, the words he says and, like, the indication of still being a passage of time. So hopefully that kind of helped you guys understand why this 911 call can play a big part on whether people think he's innocent or whether he's guilty. So, when the authorities arrive at the scene, they find Kathleen's body lying at the bottom of the stairs in a large pool of blood. Michael said that he and Kathleen had watched a movie and then went outside, sat by the pool for several hours, and drank wine. Kathleen had then decided to head up to bed, but Michael continued to sit out by the pool and drink. So, when Michael came inside, he said that this is when he found her. Michael said that Kathleen must have slipped and fallen down the stairs, 
because she was possibly drunk because I had been drinking wine all night and that she was possibly under the influence of Valium. So Valium is a type of medicine. It is used to treat anxiety, alcohol withdrawal, and seizures. So it works by calming the brain and nerves and can make you sleepy and kind of affect your concentration and focus. So what they're trying to say is that like her being drunk mixed with her medication could possibly affect like whether or not she could like go down the stairs without like being sleepier like because she couldn't focus or concentrate and stuff like that. So the medical examiner who examined Kathleen's body at the scene agreed that the death was probably an accident. But after the post-mortem examination concluded, it said that Kathleen's injuries were more consistent with blunt force trauma rather than an accidental fall. And this is kind of when the narrative begins to change. So Michael Peterson was arrested for the murder of his wife, Kathleen Peterson, on December 20th, 2002, just 11 days after she was found at the bottom of the stairs. In a public statement made by Michael after he was arrested, he said, quote, Kathleen was my life. I've whispered her name in my heart a thousand times. She is there and I can't stop crying. I would never have done anything to hurt her. So all of Michael's children stood by him and proclaimed his innocence, except for Caitlin, who was Kathleen's only biological child. And then she aligned herself with the prosecution, as well as with Kathleen's sister, whose name was Candace Zamperini. So, less than a month after Michael was indicted and put into jail, he posted bail and went home to await his trial. So, in October of 2002, while Michael was awaiting his criminal trial, Caitlin filed a wrongful death suit against Michael. So, she won this wrongful death lawsuit and was awarded a $25 million judgment in the case. So, this wrongful death lawsuit found Michael responsible for Kathleen's death, but that basically means nothing in a criminal court of law. They can't use that in court. Um, It's more so she could have got, she could get money and um, just kind of, I don't know, maybe in 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 Caitlin's mind, just, okay, he's responsible for it and they decided that. So, this happened before his trial. So now in June of 2003, something happens that, in my opinion, makes Michael look really, really guilty and plays a huge part in the trial. So this is where we're going to take um, a pretty big hop into the past before Michael and Kathleen had even met. So stay with me here. I'm going to try and make this as clear as possible. So in the 1980s, Michael was living in Germany with his wife at the time, whose name was Patricia, and whom he later divorced. So Michael and his ex-wife Patricia were friends with a woman named Elizabeth Ratliff. Now, on November 25th, 1985, Elizabeth Ratliff was found dead in her Germany home. She was found early in the morning by her nanny, and believe it or not, she was lying at the bottom of the staircase in a pool of blood. So an autopsy was performed and it concluded that she had died from an intracerebral hemorrhage which had been caused by a blood disorder she had already had. The coroner ruled that the hemorrhage caused her to collapse and fall down the stairs. Michael Peterson was the last person to see Elizabeth alive but he wasn't suspected of anything in 1985. After Elizabeth's death, Michael adopted Margaret and Martha Ratliff, Elizabeth's two daughters. 
Now, you cannot tell me this is just a coincidence. Like, what are the chances? Like, literally, what are the chances that this exact incident happens to the same man twice? Twice. I just, the odds are so rare. So rare. Like, how do two women you know, like, are found dead at the bottom of stairs? It just blows my mind. And I think this is the main thing that leads me to believe that this is not a coincidence and that this may just be like his method of killing because there is just too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence right okay so now that we have covered elizabeth ratliff's death which is played out a lot in the trial we're gonna hop back into 2003 so in june of 2003 german authorities reopened elizabeth's case because of the similarities between Kathleen and Elizabeth's deaths. Elizabeth's body was exhumed 17 years after her death and a new autopsy was performed. This new autopsy found that Elizabeth died from blunt force trauma to the head, likely the result of a homicidal attack. Prosecutors in Germany then confirmed they were working with U.S. authorities on a linked investigation. So on July 1, 2002, Michael Peterson's trial began in Durham, North Carolina. He was represented by David Rudolph, who is in the Staircase documentary as well. They interview him quite a few times, and yeah, so he's in there. So if you watch it, you'll see him. The prosecution story went like this. Michael Peterson followed Kathleen inside after a night of drinking, and he then used a blow poke from the family home to smash her head in. So this blowpoke is a center of a lot of controversy throughout the trial and the documentary because it was missing from the home at the beginning of the trial and no one knew where it was. The prosecution did not have this blowpoke and the defense did not have this blowpoke. So essentially it didn't help anyone because it would have looked better if the prosecution had the murder weapon, but it makes the defense look bad because it looks like Michael may have disposed of it. So, the defense said that Kathleen died in a freak accident, that she slipped on the stairs since she may have been a little bit drunk and hit her head on the way down, but then slipped on her own blood when she tried to stand up, which caused more severe head injuries. Now, a lot of stuff came out that seemingly gave Michael a motive to kill Kathleen and just honestly made him look bad in general. So during the trial, the prosecution brought up a witness who was a former male escort, and his name was Brent Walgamont. He testified that Michael had paid him for sex multiple times, which confirmed previous theories that Michael was bisexual and that he was having affairs with men. Michael claimed that Kathleen knew he was bisexual and was fine with him having these other affairs, but at that point, the damage to his character was already done. But he was somewhat redeemed I wouldn't say completely redeemed because this next part doesn't have to do much with his character but towards the end of the trial the blow poke the missing blow poke was found in the Peterson's home where it had been left for a year it was found in their garage and you'll see that in the documentary they film like literally the moment they found it they were like oh my gosh we found the blow poke it's all it's all on the documentary so go watch it but um, it was not damaged, and it didn't have blood on it. So this greatly affected the prosecution's case because the weapon that they've been claiming is the murder weapon this entire time 
was just found and it's not damaged and it's not bloody like they've been claiming it would be this entire trial. So it kind of made them look bad too and I get that that can be a point of oh he can't be guilty because they found the murder weapon but I mean I feel like that's still a small part. It could have been a number of other things that he could have hit her over the head with right. So after four months of trial and four days of deliberation the jury found Michael Peterson guilty of first degree murder and he was sentenced to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. But this is not where the story ends. It just gets crazier and crazier. So in August of 2008, roughly five years after Michael was sentenced, this theory came out that Kathleen could have been attacked by a wild owl. And this comes to play in the case. So Larry Pollard, who was an attorney and a friend of Michael's, held a press conference in which he presented this idea. He noted that microscopic owl feathers were found in Kathleen's hair and that an owl's talons caused the laceration that was found on her scalp. So to me, this theory sounds absolutely insane and totally out of the realm of possibility. Like, I first, I don't know. I just, literally how, first of all, if she died in the house, how did an owl get into the house? Maybe it happened outside and someone moved her. I don't know. It just seems totally ridiculous to me, right? And a lot of other people must have thought this too because though this theory kind of did control the media in for like a little amount of time, it eventually kind of fizzled away and everyone was kind of like, okay, that's kind of crazy. So after spending eight years in jail, Michael Peterson was granted a new trial because of one of the prosecution's witnesses was found to be a suspect. So, Dwayne Deaver was the man who gave the testimony about the blood patterns at the crime scene. He essentially said that the blood spatters that were on the wall around the stairs couldn't have been made by a fall, but rather someone hitting another person over the head with a blunt object. So, he was so detailed in his explanation that it made it hard for the defense to, like, disagree with him and get him to slip up in front of the jury like he looked super credible in front of the jury so in 2011 Dwayne Deaver was found to have made a mess of a case of a man who spent 19 years in jail because Deaver failed to report the blood test results that would have favored this man who was on trial so this immediately brought his testimony in the Peterson case into question because he messed up this other case so badly so who's to say he didn't mess up in the Peterson case as well so he was found to have misled both the judge and the jury in this case and Michael Peterson was then released on $300,000 bail and put under house arrest to wait another trial so in 2017 Michael entered an Alfred plea to a reduced charge of manslaughter which I feel like this happens a lot I believe that we talked about this last week um, an Alfred plea, basically, they're maintaining their innocence but acknowledging that the prosecution has enough evidence to possibly convict them. So that's what an Alfred plea is, if you didn't know before. So he was sentenced to time served and he then became a free man. So Michael Peterson is still out in the world today. And this case is absolutely nuts to me because. There are some things where I'm like, okay, maybe he didn't do it. But then there's things like Elizabeth Ratliff's death. And then I just, 
it's just so bizarre to me because who knows like what happened we may never know what happened but that is the story of the Kathleen Peterson case so I hope you guys liked this episode and again the documentary on this case is really good and covers much much more throughout a series of episodes than I ever could in just this one episode so definitely go watch that it's called The Staircase and it is on Netflix and I'm interested to see what you guys have to say about this case and what your opinions are So I'm going to give you guys the rest of this week to give this episode a listen and kind of develop your own opinions and theories as to what happened. And then I'm going to go on the Instagram and put polls up on there probably next week. So don't forget about the polls. Go share your opinions on the case on those next week. Uh, Don't forget to follow our Instagram and TikTok. They are both at but did they do it pod. And don't forget to check out our website if you aren't on social media because it's super helpful to find all the pictures and all the information on all the episodes if you are not on social media. And it is www.mckinleydaw, which is m-c-k-i-n-l-e-y-d-a-w.wixsite.com slash but did they do it. And I will be back next week with a brand new episode. Bye guys.